Hi, I'm Emily, and this is The Way We Rise, a podcast where we inquire and share stories about courage, overcoming, and rising above whatever challenges we may face. Today's episode is a conversation with my co-host Amy Schneidmiller, one of the wisest, truest, and bravest humans that I know. Amy is a psychotherapist in private practice in Bellingham, Washington. She did her undergraduate work in Oregon and her graduate work in Colorado at Newark University and CU Boulder. Amy is most at home in the outdoors. She has traveled alone as well as with her family. In her travels, she has sat in mosques, churches, synagogues, cathedrals, stupas, temples, and shrines, finding a similar thread, stillness, and connection to self and the divine. Amy grew up with a brother close in age who has a developmental disability, and that experience supported her to find her voice early in life. She has been known to shine a not-so-gentle light on whatever injustice she encounters. She has a voracious appetite for transparency and honesty. It is through that voice that sparked her career, looking to help others find their voices in resiliency. When she was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma in 2018, she told her husband, cried, and put on her running shoes. A week later, she headed to Vancouver, Canada, and ran the half marathon that she had been training for. And then she began chemotherapy. The standard chemo didn't kick the cancer, so she went to Seattle for extensive chemo treatment and stem cell transplant. After the transplant and chemo had ravaged her body, she would still find herself on the trails of the Pacific Northwest each day. Amy wakes up to strong coffee and her three children, ages 6, 10, and 11. She is a woman, sister, daughter, wife, mother, fiercely loyal friend, and thriver. She is intense about life, and cancer has only intensified that. After months of chemotherapy and her transplant, she was supported by Live Strong, a fitness group for cancer survivors, to run another half marathon. Amy loves madrone trees, good food, her mom's cooking is her favorite, reading, gardening, humor, politics, playing and coaching soccer, hiking, camping, and a gin and tonic with her husband and parents. Amy has an untamed dislike for cancer. Amy, your intro foreshadows where we're headed, but before we talk more about your battle with Hodgkin lymphoma, could you share a little bit about what your day-to-day life was like before you got sick? So my life was very full and it still is very full. It was working at my private practice and taking care of my three children, being an integral part in their lives. I was playing on a co-ed soccer team and running and active and hiking and doing all the things that really buoy me as a person engaged in my community and volunteering at my children's schools and just being connected. Mm. And I did not feel sick, did not feel sick. I did one evening after driving my kids home from karate, feel something in my throat on the drive home. And it was a sticking in my throat and I knew it was off. I knew something wasn't right. And so I called my, my personal physician and got in to see her. And I knew her really well. I'd seen her for 10 years for general checkups and knew her, thought of her as an asset of mine. 
and I let her know what was going on. And she sort of, you know, the general take of hers was, that's eh, not a really big problem. It's probably your thyroid. Um, I had, I had an ultrasound of my thyroid and um, it looked like something was around my thyroid, but it's inconclusive. So I worked with her for about eight months and I would go back into her and she would say, oh, it's probably acid reflux. So oh, it's acid reflux. And I'm thinking that that doesn't ring true, but okay, I trust you. And eight months into it, I, eight months into being undiagnosed, actually misdiagnosed by her, I felt another, I felt a lymph node in my armpit. And a good friend of mine is an oncologist. And I said to him, hey, I just want to come over and talk to you. Let's, let's meet up. And uh, long story short, he said, let me just feel your neck. Let me, let's just, you know, let's, let's look at this. Let's figure this out. And he, long story short, said, you know what? I bet this is lymphoma. Hmm. And I was taken aback. And my mom was with me to talk with him. And she was taking all the notes. And eventually I, I got all the necessary tests that one would have. So a chest x-ray. And I had a lymph excision. So I had to have surgery to take out a lymph node and have that read by pathology at the University of Washington. And it came back that I had lymphoma. Hmm. As those tests were run, I left my practice. I left my office one day. It was a couple days before my birthday. I left my office and I went to see my general practice doctor. And she came in with sort of this forlorn look on her face and I knew something wasn't right. And she just said, this, this looks like lymphoma, Amy. And as she was saying that, she was just, her hand was on the door to leave the office. Wow. That's all she was leaving me with. And I looked at her and I said, what does this mean? And she says, well, I don't know. It might mean chemo. It might mean, and I said, thank you. I got my clothes on and I left. I got in my car. And I knew what was coming forth, which was they had to, you know, the diagnosis had to be made through that surgery. And of course, I went through with that surgery immediately. I do a good job of advocating for myself. I got into a neck surgeon immediately in Seattle mm. and got the conclusive results of it being lymphoma. And so from the moment that you're driving your daughter's home from karate and you feel that foreign feeling in your throat to this moment where you're leaving this doctor's office, how much time had gone by? Approximately eight months. Hmm. Eight months. And I, I can tell you that when I sat back, looking back on the eight months, I got in touch with the family physician who was my physician's boss who owned the company that she worked for. And I asked her if she would just sit down with me. 
She's a 60-year-old physician, wanted her to review every bit of my chart. And my mom sat with me and the owner of that physician group said to me, I am so sorry. I don't know how your physician overlooked all of these markers, didn't run the tests, didn't ask you to have a chest x-ray, didn't look at this, didn't look at that. And that owner of the physician group said, you have some problems. You're well-educated, you're white, you're physically active, you're, you're well-spoken, you don't look sick. Mm. You do not look like a classic case. And I said, I have done such a good job of advocating for myself. What about the people who are disabled or other than able? What about the people who do not have as light of skin color as mm. I do? What about the people who do not have dual insurances as I do? Those people are being overlooked and they're not being diagnosed. Mm. I'm being diagnosed because I'm connected to friends who are physicians. I'm being diagnosed because I didn't shut up. I'm being diagnosed because I kept saying to my physician, this isn't right. This is not this isn't right. I don't have acid reflux. I don't have a thyroid problem. So it gave me an insight into what it must be like to be overlooked. Mm. But when I got the diagnosis, I put on my big girl boots and said, we are going to walk this fire. Mm. Let's go start the chemo. Let's go make the surgery for the power port put in my chest so you can pump my body full of chemicals so I can live. I just want to live. Mm. And Amy, your mom was with you when you had the conversation with the, the family uh, friend who's a physician um, mm -hmm. who kind of gave you the first inkling that something mm -hmm. more, more major was wrong. Um, but now you have a, a certain diagnosis and, you know, what did that look like telling, telling your husband, telling your parents, telling your children, um, mm -hmm. how did, how did those people receive it? And what was it like for you to share that? Yeah. Hmm. Well, ironically, and it was somewhat of a blessing that cancer had shown up in our next door neighbor in such a very sad way. We had gotten to see him pass away and slowly die of cancer in all of his bravery hmm. pretty well right before I left for my stem cell transplant. And he was a very brave, lovely man. And he would come out on his porch and my children and I would go visit him for two minutes a day because he didn't have a lot of energy. And we watched him bravely walk towards his death. Mm -hmm. And when my children sat down to eat dinner, my husband and I were with our children and we said, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what mom is dealing with. And we're going to do this as a family. And immediately my littlest kid said, are you going to die like Bruce? Mm -hmm. 
And I said, oh, sweetie, we're all going to pass away at one point or another. What we know is I have a different type of cancer than our neighbor. And so right now I'm not dying. Right now I'm going to fight. And the kids took that, all three of my kids took that and they asked questions and they took my lead, which was, Mm. we are going to fight. We are going to fight as a family and we're going to figure this out. And the more I know, the more I'll share with you. But right now we have some things we have to figure out. So they knew honestly and immediately my children were on board from that moment. We have not lied to them. We haven't changed the reality for them. We've been honest with them with concrete information. When I told my parents, when I told my mom, they just hugged me. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the thought and the feeling and the sentiment was, we're in this together. We'll figure it out. We've got this. I felt very supported from many, many people. Many people showed up with such bravery. And a handful of people couldn't show up. Not necessarily my family, but close friends could not take that uncertainty. Hmm. And I have a lot of compassion for them gently bowing out of my life or hitting pause or just not really showing up. And that's okay. We all have our limits. I get it. Cancer is not something I would like to lean into either. And the fight itself, the word fight, what, what did that look like to you at, at this point in time that the fight is just beginning? Did it begin for you the moment you got a clear diagnosis? At what point would you say, mm-hmm. you know, you, you put your boots on and, and you were ready to fight? Yeah. What did that look like? It looked like I was consciously putting my chin up and taking very strong privacy concerns into my own hands. I did not advertise it to my community. I told told a small, small group of friends. I asked for people to keep it private in protecting my family. I didn't want my children to be known or talked about behind their backs at school. Mm. Oh, her mom is sick. Oh, you know, I didn't want any sympathy. So that's how I initially went into battle was chin up, but head down, ready to fight. And so I did so out of protection. I was looking to keep my family very protected. I knew that we were going to go through some very tough battles. It may not seem like a big deal to have a woman in her 40s become bald, but it's a very big deal. And it's a very big deal to her children. It was to my children. And it was an emotional roller coaster at times. Nothing out of control. Definitely unpredictable. And... I needed to do everything I could to protect my children in showing them fierce honesty, Mm. as well as letting them allow me to go in and fight to figure this out. 
And the other way that I was able to fight and really show up in my life was I had to tell my clients because they would see a difference. I had committed to, to myself to working my normal hours at my office all through chemo during the summer that I experienced the traditional chemo. And I had to tell people who I have seen for years what somewhat of what I was going through and what they could expect if they would get a cancellation of their appointment because I was sick from chemo, which actually never happened. I never canceled on anybody Hmm. or why they would be showing up to somebody who had no hair, but a special beanie hat on Mm -hmm. because I was bald. So I had to let people in and I did. And that took some bravery because I normally never would tell a client about that type of struggle, but I had to. And what I showed myself was in those moments, those clients were so strong Mm -hmm. and full of open-hearted love. I had people bring in sunflowers. I had people write me poems. I had people break down and cry in front of me. I had people ask for a hug. And those are clients who dug down deep and they showed up because they're brave. So Amy, you mentioned a little bit uh, this summer where your treatment started. Can you talk a little bit more about um, you know, the, the plan going from diagnosis to starting your treatment and then what that initial treatment looked like? Mm-hmm. So my initial treatment was chemo during the summer, and it was every few weeks I would have, I would go into the cancer center. My husband would come with me. I would have my water bottle with me because you're getting pumped. I was getting pumped full of chemo, which is chemicals. And the thought is you drink lots of water and you'll have less reaction to the chemo. And I would go in and I would go in bravely. I would be ready to have my power port hooked up to bags and bags and bags of medicine. And during that time, I would stay silent, go inward, visualize cancer leaving my body. And the way that my husband would keep me afloat would be through humor and he and I would share time and space six hours of sitting for chemo every few weeks all through that summer and he would schedule his work trips to be with me in that chemo chair and after chemo every time he would take me for the largest meal I could eat And we would come home and I'd be with my children. And that was sort of the cycle that took place over over the summer up until September. And I had a PET scan, which measures the easiest way to put it in sort of 
human concept instead of medical terminology. PET scan measures cancer in the body. So after my last treatment of chemotherapy for that summer, on September 19th, I got a phone call and I went to see my doctor, my oncologist, and um, he had said, this isn't good. I saw the dire look on his face and he, he was this beautiful statuesque man, probably six, seven, very large man and just lovely person. And he looked scared and I sort of thought, what is going on? And I just looked at him. I said, what is the matter? Tell me the truth. What's going on? What is going on? And he said, is your husband here? And I said, no, he's in Germany. Mm. And he said, oh, can I call him for you? And I said, absolutely. But tell me what's going on. And he said, it looks like cancer is showing up on your PET scan on the other side of your neck, mm. the other side of my neck and the lymph nodes. And I said, oh, shoot. I said, yes, contact my husband. And so I was there and we put my husband on speakerphone and this lovely physician told him and then we hung up the phone and I came home to my parents and told them the bad news and that was that was my middle daughter's birthday and we had celebrated her birthday a few days earlier because my husband was leaving on a work trip and I remember waking up on her birthday, September 19th, and she had said, would you make me a cake? I just want you to make me that lovely, loveliest, favorite, most amazing vegan chocolate cake that you make, mom. Hmm. And I said, Piper, heck no. I fixed you a cake three days ago. We celebrated your birthday. Well, you know, after that appointment with the terrible news from my oncologist, I came home and I made the best damn cake of my life because I thought maybe I won't be around mm. in the future and I am going to make her a cake and I put all my love into that cake and she came home from school to a second birthday cake mm. and we celebrated and that was one of the biggest lessons of my life I woke up that morning saying no I don't want to fix another cake uh uh, and now I just say yes. Mm. If a friend wants to go hike a mountain, I haven't hiked, and I'm feeling kind of tired. No, the answer isn't no. The answer is yes. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. I don't know if I'm going to live tomorrow. Maybe I'll get hit by a train. That knowledge on September 19th shifted my whole deep sense of life. I thought I had cancer beat that summer. I just walked on thinking confidently, this is working. And I learned September 19th, it, it didn't work. And I was going to have to climb a gauntlet that I was not going to be coming out unscathed of. Mm. I knew my next steps would be a stem cell transplant in Seattle, which meant 
having chemotherapy at the highest rates imaginable, having stem cells collected out of my body and being put in such closeness to death, literally so close to death because of the chemo and then having my stem cells transplanted back. I knew that would be ahead because that would be how I would remain living. That was the next treatment option after not having a good outcome from that summer of chemo. Mm. And Amy, when you share this second bit of news with your family, you know, what was that like in comparison to sharing the diagnosis initially? Was it harder in some way? Uh, was it harder for you? Was it harder for your family and friends to, to receive that second bit of, hey, it's, it's not gone and, and it's growing? Mm-hmm. Well, my children, they again sort of took the lead of my husband and I. So the mindset was, this is going to be difficult. We'll figure it out. We have great physician friends. We have great medical care. We're so lucky. Seattle Cancer Care Alliance is an amazing place. It's a great research hospital. We've, we've got this. Mm. And so my children took that lead. I definitely had looks from friends of mine who are physicians. They looked scared. Mm. Makes sense to me now. It didn't make sense to me then. Um, it meant that we were going up against big guns. It meant that I was needing extensive care and the road was gonna be much longer than we had anticipated. Um, My husband, I think started to lose steam. He may not appreciate that I say this, but I could see that the emotional toll was was taking a toll on him and he remained strong and, and showed up and caring and as aware and, and open as he could. I knew that my health stress was aging my parents. I knew that it worried my brother and I did my best to be honest with people, be honest with the close ones around me, as well as protect them in a way. I didn't want extra sympathy. I didn't want um, poor Amy. I didn't want that. And I, I made that very clear to people. Why not? You know, you mentioned a couple of times wanting to make it clear that, you know, sympathy wasn't what you wanted. Um, Why was it so important to you? I wanted authenticity, fierceness, the depths of people's souls, their truth, my truth. I didn't want poor Amy. Mm. I didn't feel poor Amy. I haven't felt, why me? I haven't gone there. Uh, So I didn't want people 
in that place. If, if I had a, a, a hint of that from someone, I turned away mm-hmm. in order to protect myself. I knew I could not take care of someone else's feelings around this diagnosis. I knew I could protect my children. I knew I could show up emotionally for my children in any form. Same with my parents, same with, same with my husband. I wasn't going to do that for a friend. I needed their strength. Mm. So September 19th, you come home, you make this beautiful birthday cake for your daughter. Um, and then at some point you, you had to UW to start the next part of your treatment. So what is the timeline between the September 19th news that, um, the cancer is growing and Mm -hmm. starting this next round of treatment? Well, luckily I was raised with the ability to advocate, speak up, be persistent, be the squeaky wheel, not shy away. And I immediately got on the phone to Seattle Cancer Care to the physician I needed to get in touch with. And she immediately scheduled me, which really doesn't happen. But when you are a strong voice and you're kind, she made every effort to take me in. And she did. I got in immediately Um, for the stem cell transplant. In this case, I had to have a round of chemo in October, in November, in December for a total of three days each of those months. So it was three days, three nights, each of those months. And that's considered a conditioning, I think is the correct terminology. Hmm. And then they do a PET scan in January and then harvest the stem cells and put me into UW Medical Center for inpatient load me up with tons of chemo for seven days, give me one day of rest from the chemo. And then the transplant process happens as far as putting my stem cells back in. So when I began my chemotherapy in the October time, the three days, and then coming home, I was told by my oncologist at Seattle Cancer Care, she was very compassionate. And she said, you really need to close your office. You cannot work these next six months. And I was devastated. Mm. And I said, okay, I can do this. And so I got in contact with everyone that would come to see me in my office. And I said, I need to take a medical leave. This is what I'm doing. Um, This is what I'm doing. And everybody, all of my clients, I gave them referrals. I said, please stay on top of your mental health and your, your seeking and everything that all your work here, let it continue on. Here are referrals. I'll be back in my office. And I gave them a date because that was my goal. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I left my office. I left it as is. I locked the door and I didn't come back until April. And I I came back right on time. I mean, I pretty much said when I was going to come back and I I did, I came back happily, Mm. (laughs) super happily. 
Um, and that has been a trait of mine where I'll have a goal, something to look forward to. Often it's travel or it's some type of a, an adventure. But having a goal to get back in my office after my stem cell transplant was a really big carrot because it allowed me to remember my humanity, what I love, my passion of seeing people grow and expand and change, see different views, inputs, meanings, feelings, attachments. It's just to see people open up and thrive. And in my work, I get to see that. So three days of the month during the, the initial time at UW, um, and it was night and day chemo, is that correct? So three days, yes. night and day. And mm -hmm. so you're driving back and forth between Bellingham, Washington and Seattle, Washington. Uh, so hour and a half. Mm -hmm. um, and when you are in Seattle for those three days, are you by yourself? What is the support staff at the hospital? Mm -hmm. like? What does your support network look like now? My husband stayed the nights with me those three nights, those, those three, those months. And he would sleep on a cot right next to my bed. And I think that was more for him than it was for me. Mm. That was his way of supporting me and uh, making sure I was safe and all right. And I loved having him there. I worried about him not getting enough sleep because the nurses would come in and check on me all the time. So I had concern about him, but he, he, he would play me music and we would have conversations and we would sit in silence. And he was definitely a, a rock for me, someone who I leaned on and he would hold my hand during difficult procedures and really be a mirror for me. And I can say that when I started receiving chemo at the UW Medical Center for inpatient transplants, I bonded immediately with that staff. Those staff that make up those chemo halls are wonderful, wonderful. And I knew that they were my lifeline to living and they could bring me joy. They were the ones that I knew could bring me the outside into my inpatient room. Mm. And they did. They showed up with their lives, with their real experiences. And I bonded with these beautiful people who were there to give me chemo and check on me. And even to this day, those amazing practitioners will email me, call me, come up to Bellingham, take me out to coffee sit with me. So I bonded with them. And I think right now I can say very honestly that I did that consciously because they were my lifelines. Mm. I needed to attach, which is a fundamental human experience in order to thrive. We need to have attachments mm. And they were my attachments and they, they were wonderful. They 
treated me as a person. They were real in how they showed up. They were honest. They would bring me poetry. They would bring me music. Mm -hmm. They would sit at my bed and have conversations. I'm just so indebted to them. I'm very lucky to have had such real contact in medical care. Biggest hearts ever. Mm. When you would go home for the, the days that you were not at UW and now you have closed your practice until April, mm. what does life look like at home for you? I was active every day. I would, I would get out on the trails with my children. My children kept up with their normal activities and I would function just as any normal activity that I did before the diagnosis. So I really, um, I did everything I normally would. No, things I could not do because of my compromised immune system would be like sh grocery shopping at, at high time. I wouldn't be able to do that, but I was hiking every day with my children and playing soccer with my children and going for walks and having family meals and doing their homework with them, seeing them off to school, seeing them come home. And then I had this spaciousness in my life that really I, I had never experienced in this way was that when the house was empty, the children are at school, I had time. I wasn't, I wasn't going to my office. I wasn't doing sort of my normal in that way because I, I didn't have my work. So I was able to have reflection and reading time and sitting time and awareness time and just be with myself. Mm. It was a gift. It was a really big gift. So movement, um, I, I know was a, a big part of the process for you and yes. uh, especially movement in nature. Can you, can you talk about what wilderness was to you during this time? It was, it was my savior. That's the best word that I can use for the wilderness. I turned all of my tears over to the trails and over to the trees and over to the sky. And I would go this one loop day after day after day. And it begins with a very steep climb. And I would get to the top of that climb and my body would release into tears and I would let the tears flow. I didn't care if others were on the trail. I didn't, I did not care. And I would do that as a ritual. That was one of my hikes every day. The other hike that I would do would be with my children every day. And so there was sort of this allowance of grief that took place alone. And if I did that hike with my children, the grief hike, as I think of it, mm -hmm. I would send them down the hill after we got to the top. I would just let them rip, you know, go, I'll meet you at the bottom. And as soon as they would start to run down, I would let myself crumble, mm -hmm. cry, dive deep. And I did. And then 
it would flow out of me. Myself would come together and I'd go catch my kids and they were my guide to trusting that every step was building a muscle. Every step was feeling my breath. Mm. And we would get to the rope swing and we would get to the vistas. We would get to the water. The earth has held all of my sorrows and the earth will hold my body as it dies someday. And I know that I'll come back in the leaves and I'll be regenerated into these beautiful trees. And these trees that I hike around are the witness to my perseverance, my thriving, my grieving, my joys, my gratitude. Mm. They witness it all. Similar to my therapist, and he witnesses a lot. He has witnessed a lot. My, my trees, I call them my trees, but the earth is a constant, always there. If I need anything, I can get out and put my feet on the pavement, on the trail, in the sand. It's always there. It's a constant. I am attached. So at the times that you would get to the bottom of the, this hill and you had just poured your grief out and now here you are with your children at the tire swing and um, what was that experience? My steps were lighter. I was bouncier. I was engaged. I was ready to be with them. I was ready to play. I was ready to just be appreciative of life. I just was engaging life, just saying yes, just go, go, go. BBB. So yes, allowing the grief to pour through like a wave washing over me allowed for me to show up to them, to myself, to others in a very different way because I wasn't holding the grief. I wasn't, I wasn't letting it stick. It was just sliding off of me. And that, that kept my sanity and that kept my children from being taken down to the bottom of a lake. Mm -hmm. It allowed them to be buoyed because they saw me moving every day. They saw me enjoying life every day. They didn't see me getting stuck. They were not going to drown in the depths of any sorrow. They saw me every now and then shed a tear or get sad. They did not see me wallow in it. They, they saw the brilliance and lightness that was coming out. And physically you're doing three days a month of chemo for three months at the end of that, leading up to um, harvesting your stem cells at the beginning of January. You know, how does your physical body feel at this point you've lost your hair or you have you lost mm -hmm. weight what is your energy like yes i had lost my hair and i had lost weight which i've always been a slender person since i was a little child slender so if if someone of my stature were to lose a pound you can see it and i i never keep a scale in my house and the only times i would be weighed is if i were at a physician's office. So I lost 
and I'm guessing, but approximately eight pounds, which is a lot of weight. And um, that was daunting. After the stem cell transplant, so at the you know through February and March, I I knew I was down weight because my clothes didn't fit. I could see it in my face. I knew it from the dietitian, you know, raising her eyebrow when I would get on the scale. I back onto the scale. I wouldn't walk onto the scale straight on to see the numbers. Um, because I frankly knew how hard it is to gain weight. Mm. And uh, so, yes, I had lost weight. I'd lost muscle. I'd lost stamina. I'd lost flexibility of everything that came easy to me through all my life. Like athletics came easy. Flexibility came easy. Lifting weights came easy. Everything came easy for me athletically, physically, and I was up against a steep curve when my body had been ravaged. And yet I knew I had this internal compass that knew I needed to get strong again and I needed to do it for my, for my sanity, for my sense of equilibrium in the world. And because we are such an active family, that I wanted to partake in everything with my children. I didn't want to miss out mm. on anything because, because I was weak. And so by staying active, and, and the doctors will say and do say, stay active as much as you can. And, and I did, and I still lost muscle, stamina. I mean, I lost because the, the chemo is, is ravaging the body. So January, 2019, you get your stem cells harvested. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that process is like. I would guess a lot of people don't know what that process is like. What is that like, Amy? Well, it's pretty intense. It's a approximately 10 days worth of everyday visits to Seattle Cancer Care, preparing the body for retrieval of the stem cells. So what that entails is a daily shot of a bone stimulating medicine that makes one's bones produce the cells that they need to harvest. So the stem cells are produced within the bones and the medication gets you know, I get a shot. So I got a shot and they're measuring the, you know, is Amy's blood ready to be harvested? These are all, you know, like human to human terms. This is not medical terminology. Mm. And at one point, my oncologist says to me, okay, I think we're getting, I think your body's getting ready to be harvested. You We'll go to the apheresis machine tomorrow, we're thinking, let's check your blood, let's check your labs. And I said, okay, what are we aiming at? What's my goal? And she said, oh, you know, 2 million, 2 million stem cells. Mm. And I said, okay, let's make it four. I'm going 4 million. She kind of looks at me like, okay, 
just okay. The next day I'm ready to be harvested, which means I go into this room. My husband comes with me. I get hooked up to this machine that will take all the blood out of my body over the next approximately five hours, siphoning off the blood out of my body. And as it does that, it puts it into this machine where you can see the stem cells are of a different weight than the rest of the blood. And the stem cells are being collected and harvested as the blood is being put back in my body and the stem cells are being harvested. And that technician, lovely man, don't remember his name, he says something to me like, okay, this is, you know, your day, get in the bed and get comfortable. You're going to be here for a few hours. I want you to move as little as possible. And I said, okay, I'm geared up. I'm ready for this. I said, you know, we're aiming at 4 million. And he just looks at me and he's like, uh-huh, we are. Just, just dismissed me. And I looked at my husband. I was like, we're going for 4 million. And he's like, okay, we're going for 4 million. And my husband's like, yeah, we're, we've got this. And that night when I had left Seattle, Seattle Cancer Care, that same technician called me and he said, oh, you've taught me something. You've really taught me. And I said, what, is this good or bad news? I, I just, can you get to the point? He said, we collected 7.8 million stem cells. Wow. I've never done this before. I said, yep, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, so then I see my oncologist the next day and she's like, okay, Amy, we have 7.8 million stem cells that we've harvested. She's like, we, we've never done a transplant like this. We've never put that, we've never taken that many and we're, we've never put that many back into a body. She said, so we're going to transplant over three days. We usually do this in one day, but because there's so many, you're going to need to have three days of transplant. And I said, is this positive? Like, is this a good thing? And she said, it's not a bad thing. This is a, this, these are healthy, strong cells. We are going to cryogenically freeze them for this next month while you are getting the biggest chemo of your life. And when you're ready to be transplanted, we're going to give you all your healthy cells back, 7.8 million of them over three days. Hmm. So I do believe that having a strong mindset, having a positive outlook, shooting for the stars, you tell me two, I say four, you say a little bit of gold, I say I want the whole hunk. Like, yes, let's do this. We have one shot. This is life. Aim big. Life is short. Those stars burn out. They don't have long tails. Look at those big shooting stars. Look now. They're not going to be there in a second. Do it now. So positivity, mindset matters, visualization matters, embodying it, telling others about it, not being afraid when somebody poo-poos you, has you look the other way, raises their eyebrow, sit with your truth. You want 4 million? My body just produced 7.8 million stem cells for transplant. So you have your 7.8 million, which is 
hard to even fathom visually what that what that mm -hmm. looks like for 7.8 million stem cells but between the harvesting um, and the transplant you have what you said is the most intense part of chemo yet to come mm -hmm. so what what does that look like what is what is the most oh. intense chemo look like it was the worst pain of my life and i have known pain as far as birthing three children in unmedicated births and you know really digging deep into athletics and like i know what it is to feel pain but this type of pain that i went through with that chemo was unlike anything else so the way I wrote in my journal when I was the sickest and the most beaten down by that chemo was that it felt like road rash on the inside of my body mm. from my mouth to my tail, road rash. I couldn't eat. I couldn't talk. I couldn't, I couldn't move. I made myself move. I made myself walk three miles every day, every day, even at my worst inside of inpatient at Utah Medical Center, around and around the same little loop of my hospital floor with my chemo pole. But I could not swallow and I resisted taking any pain medication that first day, you know, after having that chemo. And then it, the pain broke me. I, I, I couldn't take the pain. I really thought I could muscle through it and I couldn't. And a lovely friend of mine who's a physician in Bellingham, I put her on speakerphone with my physician at UW Medical Center, and I said, you know, have this talk with me. I can't talk. I'm whispering to her over speakerphone. And I said, please just talk to my physician about my beliefs on pain meds. They talked, and my good dear friend, she just said to me, Amy, take the medicine. Amy, take the pain medicine. You'll get your rest you'll heal with this pain medicine. You need the break. You can't do it on your own. You can't white knuckle this. You need to be supported by the pain meds. I took the pain meds. It was through my power port. It was a pump that I could pump with my own finger. And that allowed me to bear the pain. It didn't take away the pain. I still couldn't swallow. I still couldn't open my mouth because the chemo attacks cells that turn over rapidly, which is what we know cancer is. Things that turn over rapidly in our body are cells in our mouths, cells in our gut, cells in our intestines, cells in our esophagus turn over rapidly. And all of that felt like it had been ripped out of my body, mm. scraped on a blacktop and acid poured over it, shoved back in my body. And I was there to figure out how to live 
knowing I would come away from that pain, but knowing I needed and wanted and deeply desired to get the hell out of that place, Mm. to be with my family, to be with my children, to touch my children, to love my children, to be back in the living because I was on death's doorstep in that pain. It ravaged me. So your husband had been with you during um, other chemo treatments throughout the journey so far. Was he there during the, the seven days of days and nights of chemo as well? So when I was in for the seven days and seven nights of chemo, the, the length of my stay in that, in the inpatient treatment was one whole month. And he had said, I want to be there with you. And I said, no, no, I need to be alone. We agreed upon he would be with me the first two nights. And he was. And then I needed him to go. I needed him to go home. I needed to be alone. I needed to face all of this with all of my energy, digging down deep, pushing it to heal, pushing it to fight cancer, pushing it to find my strength. I needed to know that he was home with the children, with my parents. I needed to know things were safe at home so I could focus on me. Mm. He left and he would come to visit me once a week, as would my parents. That was my time was to be alone. I needed that to go inward. I needed no distraction. I needed absolute present moment. I needed space to wake up in the morning and watch the sun rise. I needed space to chant and pray and meditate and visualize. I needed space to grieve, cry, walk the halls and cry. I needed space to just be alone. Did you ever lose hope? Never, never, never. The hope is the last thing you could take from somebody. It's just like blowing out a candle. I had to keep my candle stoked. I had to know even if it was the mildest flicker, it would go on. I will do anything to live because I have children who haven't been launched from their nest yet. Mm. I want to see them spread their wings and do good in this world. I want to be on this earth. My hope is as alive today as it ever has been. And I remember being in graduate school and having a professor say, don't ever take hope from a client. That may be the last thing she has. Mm. And that has stuck with me for all these years is the kindling of hope. If you have no hope, I don't know what we have. So hope is the openness of all possibility. 
After your seven days and seven nights of chemo, the next step is to get your 7.8 million stem cells transplanted back into your body over three days. What was that experience like? It's a pretty phenomenal process. I mean, I am in awe of these amazing scientists and researchers and physicians and nurses and everyone in this think tank. And so they cryogenically freeze the stem cells into little packets. There were three packets and they would show up in what looked like R2-D2 because there's, I'm sure this is technically wrong, but dry ice, it's keeping those cells frozen. Mm. They pull them out of the R2-D2 metal machine and start to gently thaw them so that they're ready to be placed in my body. And that process is actually a very brutal process Hmm. because it goes in through the port, goes into my body and the cells are in a preservation fluid and the preservation fluid, the body can react to. And so the way it felt when those healthy cells were being put into my body. So it takes 45 minutes and that's those three days, 45 minutes, the one day, 45 minutes, the next day and 45 minutes, the next day. And when they started going into my body, it felt like my body was on fire from the top of my head to the tip of my toes on fire. And the taste in my mouth, because of the preservative that the stem cells are in, the taste in my mouth creates a revolting bodily reaction. So the body wants to throw up and you don't want to throw up, but you know, the body wants to. So there's this reflex that's taking place all the while I'm visualizing these are healthy, strong cells. They're coming back to my body. They know what to do. And the nurses had said, we will order from the kitchen the little oranges. As long as you eat the oranges, you're not going to taste that rancid taste in your mouth. So there were things that they were trying to do to help me but it was a brutal process as far as just feeling on fire. And my body was on fire from, again, from that preservation fluid that was inside of the stem cells, you know, keeping the stem cells frozen. And so it, it's kind of like a blood transfusion. It, it looks like blood being put into my port, but then there's a bodily reaction And so that takes place and it's a magical experience because it's such a unique experience. And I felt like I was getting a second chance at life. And I was so lucky to be able to take this type of treatment because it's quite unique and not everybody gets this opportunity. 
Uh, so I felt blessed and cursed at the same time because it was such a painful process. And doing it that first time, my husband was with me for day, that first day. And it was really hard for me to have him see me in such pain. Mm. And he was very present. He was right there with me. And there's nothing he could do to take away that feeling in my body. And he just bared it with me. And so there's, there's the thoughts that we put on pain and then there's the pain itself. And my practice during that time of the 45 minutes for those three days was uncoupling my thoughts from the pain. Mm. The pain isn't bad, it's just very painful. You know, uncoupling the pieces it's you know, just describing the pain to myself and what it feels like. Felt like I was on fire for 45 minutes. I was really feeling what it must be like to be thrown into my fire pit, mm. a full raging fire. And I couldn't get out of it. I could not get out of it. So you're there on fire mm-hmm. as, as literally as, as possible. Mm-hmm. And you were going through this practice of, you know, separating the pain and, and the suffering, if that mm-hmm. sounds right. And then the process ends mm-hmm. and it's nearly April at this point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Let's see. February and March. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yep. the next step after this, other than getting your practice going again, is mm-hmm. what is there a next treatment step at this point? Yes. So in January, there was a clinical trial that was coming up that one of the doctors at Seattle Cancer Care, she was aware of this clinical trial for post-stem cell transplant recipients who had a diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma, that they could participate in a there was one slot open, literally one slot open for the, for the clinical trial aimed at remission for post-stem cell transplant recipients. And she said, I think you're an ideal candidate. Do you want to do this? And I said, absolutely. You're saying to me, I could get involved in a human clinical trial that would better and help science and our oncologists and the cancer world aiming at remission. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Now tell me what that involves. And she's like, well, it involves low level chemos over the next, I believe it was six months. So let's, let me think about this. April, May, June, July, August, September. Yep. Roughly six months. And so I did it. So yes, give it to me. I want I want remission. I want cancer to go away. I want to live. Give me anything. So I became a part of that clinical study that immediately started in April. And that was low level chemo. Um, Throughout that summer into, I believe it was into October was my, yes, October was my last chemo for the cl- for the clinical trial of 2019 
And that was low level chemo, but I would go down to Seattle once a month and sit and take chemo for about six hours, just because it's a slow process. And I would either have my husband with me or one of my girlfriends who was just, just ready to spend a day with me inside of a hospital room getting chemo. And so those two supported me through getting chemo for the clinical trial aimed at remission. And my doctor for that is an oncologist who is both an MD, a medical doctor, and a PhD. And she has been just a very gentle yet strong advocate for me. And I've really loved working with her and she's still one of my doctors now. In the beginning, we have lots of meetings before clinical trials and she was sitting with my husband and I and my husband sort of said to her, as, a, as I'm ready to sign the papers for the clinical trial and my husband sort of says, you know, Amy wants to run this half marathon in the fall. She really can't do that, can she? And the doctor said, no, no, she can't. She can't. She's not going to be, she's not going to be able to, she won't be able to train for it. She'll be too tired this summer. She, she just can't. No. And I kind of looked at, at my husband. I looked at him like, um, you just brought this up to her. I, I don't need her permission. You just brought this up to her, setting it up for her to say no. And so I kind of looked at him and I remember him saying, don't give me that stink eye. And I kind of looked at him like, hello, you're in my, you're in my court here. You're on my side. And yes, that doctor told me, no, I wouldn't be able to, but that became my saving grace. I joined Live Strong, which is a fitness group for cancer survivors in May. After my stem cell transplant, I'd gotten home, gotten back to work in April, got my feet beneath me, started to feel confident, started to feel like I could be out in the world. And I joined that Live Strong group and Two of my coaches, I mean, those two coaches were amazing, but the one, one of the coaches would take aside every one of the Livestrong participants. And early on, she, she would ask, what are your goals? And I, I, I used a really strong word, it was a cuss word. And I said, uh, my goal is to run the half marathon for run, it's called run like a girl in October. And she said, great, I'm going to write that down in your chart. I said, oh no, you've put it down. That means I'm going to do it. Like if, if I tell somebody I'm going to do it, anything, I don't care what it is. I am fierce to my word. If I say I will come and knock down your door, you better be ready for me to knock down your door. I've never done that. But if I say something, you better believe I'm going to do it. I do not back out of my word. 
Well, I had committed to that coach that I was going to run that half marathon. And when your body, when my body was ravaged by the stem cell transplant, the chemo before that and the chemo during that and the chemo after that for the clinical trial, I didn't really know what I was committing to, but it made me commit to training without any excuses. And that goal was my saving grace. It made me rise to my occasions, rise to no excuses, rise to my inner courage and keep saying yes to life. Mm. Life was still here. I am still here. I am going to run that half marathon. And I did. I showed up. My girlfriend who was the physician who called during the pain, during the stem cell transplant chemo, and she was the one that supported me in taking the pain medicine. She showed up to run. Her husband showed up to run. Another girlfriend showed up to run to, to show support. My husband came, my family came, my children, my children came and they they ran the last mile with me and we all ran in together i finished i completed wow and i did it and i was so glad to be alive mm. and i remember crossing that finish line and being filled with emotion overwhelmed with being thankful I have my family, I have the trails, I have support, this life is beautiful, I have my running shoes, and I always have me. Mm. And it was the best feeling to have my children with me to run that last mile. They are my guides, they are my lights, they're my fiercest champions. And they are my fiercest protectors. Not in a negative way. They don't have burdens. They just show up where they want to show up. They grab my hand harder. They push me harder if we're running. They are my cheerleaders. I'm curious. Um, you know, you said that you were an intense individual before cancer and an even more intense individual since. Uh, what was it like for, you know, the doctors and nurses and, and hospital staff and people you encountered to witness that intensity? I would imagine that that's a pretty foreign thing to see as someone is, you know, taking on cancer. I've had... One doctor called me a unicorn. I wasn't sure what that meant at the time. I was like, what's a, what's a unicorn? But I get it now. Um, when I was on those chemo wards, there is so much death. There is so much despair. There is so much grief. But it stuck. It didn't stick on me because I moved. I physically moved. I got up every day into my routines. 
I washed my face in the morning. I listened to my chanting. I watched the sunrise. I did my prayer. I did my meditation. I got my, my running shoes on and I walked those halls. That is a unicorn. I, I did that because I knew that that was my lifeline. Mm. I didn't do it because it felt good. None of it felt good. I did it because I knew that that would make me live and I needed to get out of that hospital. I needed to get out of UW, even though the people are amazing in there, I needed to get the heck out. Mm. I needed to smell the fresh air and get to the trees and get to the mountains and get to my people and get to my home and get to life again. So yes, physicians, nurses, staff people have done double takes looking at me asking me to put like ribbons on my door. Like, no, 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 no. Don't put ribbons on my door. Like I just completed something. No, I don't want any of that known. Just let me be. I just need to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. And they encouraged me to keep moving. They did. And I would put on special music, put in my earbuds and start walking. And boy, I would whip around those corners like nobody's grandma. I was just out of there. Like I just pushed and pushed and pushed myself in those halls. If I felt like dancing, I was dancing with my chemo pole. Absolutely. That music was booing me to find my life spirit. It's in there. Even when you're sicker than a dog, tap into it, turn inward, find that fire. It's there. Mm. It is there. That is the spirit. That's the universe. That's God and goddess. That is breath. That is feeling. Get attached to it. Get aware of it. Fight for it. Keep it stoked. What is the most important thing that you know about life now? Take every opportunity to say yes. I was always a yes person before. Now it's a bigger resounding yes. Yes, yes, yes. And I'm all about clear boundaries. I can say no really easily. I know what I don't want to do and I know what I won't do. And I know exactly when my children need to be in their beds and the rest of the night is mine. I know fiercely what is to say no to. The yes opportunities aren't just mild yeses now. They're big yeses. If somebody says, could you please come talk to? Yes, absolutely. I would love to talk and share that experience. Or yes, I can listen. Absolutely. Would you do this for me? Yes, I am into it. Will you come here and go camping? Yes, I will take anything, any experience to dive in and take a taste of, let me have it. So I think my message is, how do we open up to saying yes more? Instead of cocooning ourselves and shrinking, how do we say yes more? Hmm. Cancer has given that to me. Beyond saying yes, how would you say this experience has changed you and, and the people around you? My middle daughter is 
a very strong-willed, fierce, fiercely loving child, very strong-minded, independent. Things are on her terms as far as a hug or a, any physical affection. It's always on her terms. Perfect. I like that. Well, since this cancer diagnosis, she reaches for my hand, reaches for a hug. She is softer and more physically open with me, which is really sweet. My eldest child is very intuitive, highly feeling, emotionally intelligent, and she's more so. She can sniff it out immediately. She knows more now, and she's always been a very intuitive child. So they have intensified. My youngest is a very emotionally intelligent little guy, and he has shown us quite intelligently, just the body is intelligent, on how if we tend to feelings in children, trauma doesn't happen. Mm. If we tend to feelings in human beings, trauma doesn't happen. He has shown us that when he has a memory come up from when I was gone, we sit, we feel it, we name it, we ride it, we hold him. And now he's moving on. It's beautiful to see how resilient my children are. It's beautiful to see how people have stepped up in my life to show me how present they are. Very close girlfriend of mine in Colorado was through this whole diagnosis, thick and thin, put her feet in the fire with me, showed up emotionally transparent, beautiful cheerleader, right there. A handful of my friends are just those golden eagles that you cannot replace. Tried and true, fiercely standing by to see and watch. Cancer impacts not just the person that it was diagnosed to, but those around can step up as well and and open and blossom and discover a bigger depth to themselves at some point along the way did you you know look at what was in front of you and make an intentional choice about how you were going to show up and respond to it yeah i had to be conscious about it i absolutely had to be conscious because what I was stepping into was pain, the physical pain, and then the emotional pain of seeing death so close to me. So it was a conscious choice to pivot towards death with the end goal of choosing life. I wasn't running from death. I was sort of turning towards death and saying, oh yes, hello, you're right. Life is short. 
this is an intense diagnosis and I'm still living. I am going to do it because I love my family. I love myself. I love this earth. I love food. I love, love, love. I want it. I still want it. I'm not ready to be off this earth. I really do want to bury my parents. I don't want them burying me. I want that. I chose. I chose. I'm going to do this. I have to do this. I want it so badly. And until I'm told, you know what? You don't have much time to live or you're dead tomorrow or whatever, right? I I will live until I know otherwise. Mm. I will live until I see the last spark happen. I'm there. I fully want to rise. I want to die the way I've lived. I want to die consciously. I want to die humanely. I want to die with compassion and I want to die letting go. So yes, it's a choice. What does it mean to be brave? Um, Is brave something you are or is it something you choose? I think it's both. I think bravery is a verb. It's an action. It's a belief. It's a quality of movement. I don't think bravery is a badge. I don't think bravery is distrusting yourself or myself. Bravery is feeling the fear. It's that quote, right? Feeling the fear and doing it anyway. It's not, it's not breaking your own personal boundary. It's saying, this is hard and I can do it. This is hard. I will figure out how to do it. I often say to people, when you want to grow a really strong tree, you want it to be strengthened by the wind and the storms. It grows its roots deeper, wider, longer. You'll have a stronger tree if you allow it to feel. You will have a weak tree if you guard against it from the wind and the rains and you put up physical supports on the outside so it can't feel the wind. It will be a very weak tree. We don't want that in human beings. We want, I want to feel it all. I want my children to feel it all. They will get through it. They will find their supports. I will support them. Their community will support them. They'll support themselves. I support myself. We move through the feeling. We are strong and resilient from that. That is bravery. Mm. Bravery is when the oncologist says, we need to take a bone marrow biopsy. That involves a large needle in the crest of your hip to make sure that you don't have cancer in your bone. I say, okay, no pain medicine for me, please. I need to be physically present for this procedure. I need to know my body is here with me. We are one. Bravery is knowing that pain will not last forever. That needle will go into my bone. It will pull out a core of my bone. It will be brought out of my body. I will be okay. Bravery is saying, 
that will be painful. I'm going to feel it. I'm going to do okay. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to stay present. I'm going to hold the hand of my husband or my mom. They were both with me for two of those procedures. And I was present and I survived. That's physical pain, but I can also name emotional pains that, yes, feel that flush over your body. How is it to be angry, to be sad, to be scared, to be whatever feeling arises, happy, joyous, whatever. If you're not able to go to the depths of sadness, you really can't feel happiness. It's not like you can choose a feeling. They do come and they do go. Take me to the depths. That's the bravery. That is sitting with your feet in the fire. Wow. I think that is an incredible place to wrap up. Um, Amy, thank you so much for having this conversation with me, for sharing as candidly and as vulnerably as you did. Uh, thank you for your willingness to share this story. I, I think it's going to touch so many people. Emily, thank you for this experience, talking with you, allowing yourself to witness my journey as it even continues on to this day, allowing for your gifts of inquiry and the ability to harvest one's story for introspection and helping me to claim and reclaim the strengths that I possess. And I appreciate the opportunity to share what I have gathered and figured out and am still am learning about life. And it reminds me of a stanza of a poem that I love from Maya Angelou. And she says, just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. With her words of wisdom makes me reflect on all those who have come before me, who will come after me. And may we all dig down deep to find ways that we can show up for ourselves, each other, and the planet. And you are walking and living your talk. You are showing up for others, harvesting stories of perseverance and of your business of true kind, as in those two words, true kind. The world needs more of that right now. Thank you for this opportunity, Emily. You have a wealth of knowledge and wisdom to pass along, and I appreciate you tending to people, and I appreciate you tending to my story. After recording this podcast, Amy received the results from her one-year post-chemo PET scan. The results revealed classic Hodgkin lymphoma in her neck. She is still on the journey battling and is keeping a cure in sight. Chemo is underway, and a donor stem cell transplant is planned for early 2021. And to end this podcast, I just want to remind us all that while the days are long, the years are short. May we all lean in and say yes to life. And may we all rise.